Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. This is another classic interview format episode. And today, we've got somebody fighting for legalization in a place where it is truly an uphill battle. Isn't that right, Bean? Yeah, we're going to one of the places, maybe not with the harshest laws against cannabis, but still incredibly harsh laws. And on top of that, a country where simply identifying yourself as a cannabis user or even a cannabis supporter can have you ostracized from your workplace, from your family, and from really the whole of society. Yeah, that's right. And we are talking, of course, about the island nation of Japan. I actually spent my semester abroad in college in Tokyo in 2005. Probably the most awesome place in the world that you can do your semester abroad. It really was fantastic. But of course, as a cannabis person in Tokyo, you realize that you are much more in a drinking culture than a cannabis smoking culture, right? People definitely love to indulge in alcohol and party in Japan. But cannabis is very, very illegal. And in fact, the underground for cannabis there is extremely small. So I never met the people cultivating cannabis. They really wanted to keep it on the low, but I did get to smoke some of their wares. The hash that's available in Japan is pretty low quality, really dark, tarry hash, right? It essentially looks like bowl resin. Who knows where the cannabis is actually coming from? But the bottom line is that it's very, very illegal there. Even if you're the type of person who would be into it, it's likely that you've never smoked cannabis or that you've never even considered accessing it. That is just the state of things in Japan, which is incredibly sad because it is a country that includes cannabis in its ancient history. Yeah, even more than involves cannabis, reveres cannabis. You know, if we're going back thousands of years, and this is something we're going to talk about in the episode, it's part of the foundation of the religion of Japan, the culture of Japan. It's integrated into some of the oldest traditions, like sumo wrestling. It was sort of the ultra cops, which we would call the United States military, that imposed prohibition on Japan after World War II, and they have still not dug out from under that legally or in terms of the stigma that was imposed along with those laws. And the irony, of course, is the United States moving rapidly towards legalization, and yet many places, not just Japan, around the world where we imposed this prohibition continue to impose it on their own people long after we have started to change our minds and laws here in the U.S. It really is an injustice of global prohibition that the United States led the campaign to prohibit cannabis worldwide, while the nations where we impose prohibitions are still suffering under the yoke of that ridiculous and senseless law. When I used to work at the Cannabis Cup in Amsterdam, every year we would get an influx of Japanese tourists and... To your point, they were beyond blown away with the quality of the cannabis that was available. <laughs> you know, we would get, we would also get some people from Northern California who would go into the coffee shops and say, mm, well, you know, I kind of have better weed on my coffee table <laughs> at home. That was not the response of the Japanese people who I met. But also you 
could just sense a, a feeling of relief culturally of being accepted into this global community of weed people who would gather for that event, but also just not having to look over your shoulder. You know, the idea that weed makes people paranoid is very strongly linked to its prohibition. And I really think that our mission here on this podcast, our mission as a culture in this moment is to simultaneously always push against the terrible things that come from this prohibition and also create a vision for people in these places to understand it gets better. There is a world of openness and acceptance of cannabis, and it is going to reach you whether you are in Japan, whether you are in places with authoritarian governments. The momentum is on our side, and anyone listening to this in Japan just know we felt the same way. We felt that this might not ever change, but we slowly slowly, slowly chipped away until ultimately this whole system fell. Yeah, absolutely. And this is part of our ongoing effort to shine a light on the struggles of cannabis activists in places where prohibition is still very much in place. So Bean and I really would like to continue highlighting people from around the world who are fighting the good fight and who have a harder time than we do here in the United States. And today's guest is no exception. We're going to be speaking with Naoko Miki, who began her cannabis journey in 2010 in Japan while working as a book translator. After translating a book called Love 101 by the author Peter McWilliams, she discovered the awful circumstances around his death. So McWilliams was a vocal proponent of medical cannabis based on his own use to treat pain and nausea due to AIDS. And he was arrested in 1997 by a team of DEA agents just a few weeks after giving a fiery speech in which he condemned the federal government for continuing to persecute medical cannabis patients and providers. A judge ordered McWilliams to abstain from cannabis while on trial for conspiring to, quote, possess, manufacture, and sell marijuana, end quote. Any mention of the plant's medicinal benefits or even California's law protecting medical cannabis patients was banned from the courtroom. So without access to cannabis, McWilliams began a rapid physical deterioration, and in 2000, he passed away on the bathroom floor of his Los Angeles home, while awaiting sentencing. Yeah, this is an awful case. This was something that was happening right after California passed Prop 215, the first law protecting medical cannabis patients. And here comes the federal government targeting an individual in California who has AIDS, one of the specific conditions that this law was passed to address. Now, what's fascinating and shows the interconnectedness of this global cannabis culture is that this was the story 10 years later that inspired Naoko to learn more about this plant. And she decided she could put her skills as a translator to work by translating other books about cannabis into Japanese to break the barriers down between these two cultures literally embodied in the language barrier, but also in the different ways that people think about this plant. She made that information available to people in Japan, and that led her to become a 
full-time cannabis activist, and she co-founded a group called Green Zone Japan, where she continues to push for an end to cannabis prohibition. In this episode, we're going to talk with Naoko about the long history of cannabis in Japan, and also a case that's currently moving to trial there. So a celebrated ceramic artist and cannabis activist is currently defending himself in a criminal case for violating Japan's Marijuana Control Act by trying to overturn the law entirely, and he needs your help. Advocates in Japan are asking people from around the world to please sign a change.org petition in support of the defense in this case, and you can find that link in our show notes for this episode. It is both written in Japanese and in English, so you can read it, learn more about the case, sign it yourself, and for anyone in our listening audience in Japan or who knows people in Japan, you can share that same link with them. Yeah, absolutely, and we really hope that after listening to this episode, you'll consider signing this petition on change.org. All right, so before we get into it, we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Ever since we became a weekly show, we've been seeing week over week growth, and we just are so appreciative of everybody who's on there. And we've got a new directive, a new effort that we're chasing. We are trying to get 420 supporters on Patreon by 420 this year. Isn't that right, Bean? Yes, absolutely. You know, it's a big goal for us. 420 is right around the corner. We're going to have all kinds of special programming for you as we do every year. 420 is, of course, the highest of all high holidays. And man, I can tell you from the bottom of our hearts, if we could get to 420 Patreon subscribers by 420, it would change our lives. It would change the trajectory of this show. It would allow us to do even more for you, the listener, and really feel great about having a grassroots <laughs> support system behind us. <laughs> more weed puns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And fresher weed puns. You know, <laughs> A lot of the proceeds will go towards even fresher weed puns. Nah, the, the weed puns are always fresh. You, you guys you guys know that. We know there's a certain segment of the audience that's coming for the weed puns specifically. But if you would like to support us on Patreon, please check us out at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And if you already support us, thank you so much. We really appreciate you. And if you're a new supporter, thanks for jumping on the bandwagon. We are on our way to 420 supporters by 420 this year. Please help us reach that goal so we don't have to do a telethon. And if you support at any level on Patreon, you get the video version of this podcast. You'll get to see us sitting in a lovely field of weed recording this show for you while we get high and hold buds up and do everything you want to see. And speaking of telethons, I have to say that I just saw an old clip of Jerry Lewis from his annual telethon for muscular dystrophy making a direct appeal this is not a joke and i am about to play this clip for you where he appeals directly to cocaine dealers to use a bit of their profits to support his cause and so of course 
Uh, we are going to have to ask any weed dealers out here. You're making a living, maybe even making a killing off of this plant. You like this show. If, if, if Jerry Lewis can, can ask Coke dealers uh, for, for a little support, I think we can uh, reach out to you as well. Every day in the Port of Miami, they're picking up a billion dollars worth of cocaine. If I can get a child out of a wheelchair, I don't care where I get the money. So you big wheelers and dealers out there that are so high right about now anyhow, I'm not condoning what you people do, but I sure as hell would love to share some of that loot with you. Yeah, absolutely. To all our weed dealers out there, cultivators, uh, growers, and hell, our cocaine dealers too. I mean, shit, <laughs> I, I think we could ask the same thing as Jerry, uh, you know. Yeah, and that is at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, but... uh you know, send us money, not cocaine, please. <laughs> Indeed. Alrighty, so, Bean, I have a fat pipe of some high 90s Gelato 33 packed up right here, ready to go for this episode. What do you got going on over there? Oh, I had to get into a little bit of the peach mints. Oh, Ooh, oh, I don't okay. think I got that one. Oh, 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 oh. Got, oh got one exclusive. on you. Well, I'm about to... Uh, Light them up, but uh, oh, where? Hold on. I'm being told that you, the listener, may not be rolled up. You may not have your bong packed or your bowl stuffed or, you know, your dabs ready to indibulate. And, you know, we're going on without you. Ready? Oh, no. <laughs> you can just hit pause. Take that time to split a blunt. Or pack a bong, or do whatever it is you're going to do with the weed these days. Because when you get back, we'll be ready for another great, great moment, moment in weed history. We are here with Naoko Miki. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting because, you know, we don't get to hear a lot about cannabis from Japan on Japan, right? So we'll start as we usually start by asking our guests, what is your history with cannabis? How did you first come upon our favorite plants? I'm a book translator by trade, and I first learned that medical cannabis existed when I translated one of the books written by Peter McWilliams. I'm sure you know who he is. And I learned how he died. He was a medical cannabis patient and he got arrested by the federal government and was released under condition that he would not use cannabis at home. And then he died choking on his own vomit at home in his bathroom. Yeah. When I heard that, you know, it really angered me. And so medical cannabis, the word medical cannabis stuck in my head. And then a few years later, when I started Twitter, um, I learned that there were Japanese patients with Crohn's disease who wanted to use medical cannabis in Japan. But as you probably know, the, the stigma against cannabis in Japan is 
very strong. People's perception of cannabis needed to change for any change to happen. So as a translator, I wanted to do something. So I decided to translate a book called Marijuana is Safer, which was written by Paul Armentano, Steve Fox, and um, Mason Tavert. Yes. Yes. Mason yes. Tavert, the legend yes. of uh, Colorado's legalization law. All, all friends of the podcast. The Don Draper of pot. Remember these? <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. And this is the book. Oh, that's the Japanese translation there. Yes. Huh. That's interesting. So there was sort of a, a little bit of destiny going on here. Huh? Do you mm. feel like? Do you feel like you found something that resonates with you in the way that cannabis activists like Bean and myself feel like there's a calling in a sense? You know, cannabis just wasn't in my life. I was very neutral about it. But when I learned this story about Peter, I just thought it was wrong. And I saw no reason that it shouldn't be allowed. Um, I'm married to an American and I divide my time between here and Seattle. And I've been spending mainly summers, my summers in Seattle. Every year, the, the gap between how liberal Seattle is about cannabis and how things are here widened. I started sort of feeling that cannabis God found me and you know, started to use me or wanted to use me. That's how I see it. Well, welcome to our club. <laughs> yeah, we all worship at the altar of cannabis God. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And so that to me is so beautiful that you could take that skill that you have as a translator, quite literally and sort of figuratively between two cultures. And mm. when you applied it to now translating books literally about cannabis, what was the effect of that uh, for spreading that information in Japan? And how did that affect you personally in your life? The fact that I translated this book introduced me to this circle of activists in Japan, which was a small circle. And I learned what, what people were doing. And I also, um, around that time, I started to attend Seattle Hemp Fest every year. So I got to know activists in the US as well. Really central people to the to the movement. Shout out Vivian McPeak, of course, who we had on the show, co-founder of Seattle Hempfest. They do great work. I, I want to go back at a, in a bit and talk about sort of the ancient history of cannabis and hemp, which are, of course, the same plant in Japan. But just to let people understand can you talk about what the laws are like now? Cannabis is um, controlled under Cannabis Control Act, which was enacted in 1948, which was imposed upon us by GHQ, the American Occupation Army. And it hasn't changed ever since. You know, it hasn't been touched. So we are still bound to this 74-year-old law, which says cannabis plant, cannabis sativa L, is prohibited for any use, you know, cultivation, possession, and transfer prohibited for any purpose, including medical use or research, except for a very small number of license holder. And obtaining a new license is, is virtually impossible. And in terms of the pre-war ancient ritualistic traditional use of cannabis, you know, we know that 
medical cannabis appears in the ancient Chinese pharmacopoeia, in ancient Middle Eastern and South Asian pharmacopoeia, right? Where does it appear in Japanese history and what, for what purpose? Cannabis is believed to be used in, uh, you know, since the prehistory era. We call it Jomon period, which started like 10,000 BC. Uh, it was ex- excavated from the, the ruin of that period. So there's archaeological evidence of people using cannabis. Okay, yes, yes. So they were using it for fiber, you know, and seas. And it was uh, a very important, it was integrated, deeply integrated in their lives. It was like that all the way through World War II. Pre-World War II, there were over 50,000 hemp farmers. We wore clothes made from the fiber, ate seeds, made oil, even used it medically. There was a hemp cigarette advertised in newspaper for asthma. There was a tincture called Indian hemp tincture. And there's a tradition of religious use in Japan as well, correct? Yes. Yes, our um, indigenous religion called Shintoism reveres hemp as sacred plant. And it, it uses fiber ropes and papers made of hemp in various ceremonies. And if you know sumo... <laughs> Are, are wrestling, the grand champion wears a uh, rope around the, the waist in the opening ceremony of each tournament. That's made of hemp. And outside of all the shrines, there's a big rope hang to mark the sacred space and ward off evil spirits. That's also made from him. I think it shows how ingrained into the culture mm. cannabis really was. Because, you know, Shinto, yes, is a national religion, but it also, especially pre-war, was really a part of everyday life. And as you're describing it, cannabis is so central to these things, right? And so out in front and out in the open, right? That it's the it's the grand championship belt for, for sumo. Contrasting that with the really strict draconian prohibition within a generation essentially happening, right? Mm-hmm. Can you describe what that was like? And is there a sense there among the general public that this should change back to the way things were? So it's only been 74 years, as you say. You know, Before that, cannabis was everywhere. When this law was enacted, it said that hemp was the second largest agricultural crop in Japan you know, after rice. It amazes me how the public perception of cannabis has changed in that short period of time. But Japanese people alive today, when they were born, it was already prohibited. And so they grew up with that in mind. And, you know, Japanese people are very obedient in a way, you know, we don't protest there is a campaign that the government has been, the, the catchphrase that government has been using, which is basically a translation of just, just say no. And in Japanese, it's called damezettai. And it just says, no, absolutely not, <laughs> with no <laughs> rationale behind it. It's just no is a no is a no. But in, in the recent years, after the, this you know, prevalent uh, in internet access, you 
cannot block the, all the information that's coming in. The young generation know what's happening around the world. So I think things are starting to change. In a country where, as you're saying, it's so part of the culture to be obedient how is there ever going to be any potential for the actual change of these laws? What's your plan for that? I co-founded an organization called Green Zone Japan in 2017. And the venue we chose is medical, medical cannabis. We think that's the, the shortest route for legalization. Also, this hemp-derived CBD popularity is opening another door. Because there is a loophole in the Cannabis Control Act, which only prohibits the plant, leaves, and flower, you know, the mature stock and seeds are legal. So when the manufacturer says that they're producing their CBD products from mature stock, then it can be imported. So there are products legally circulating the Japanese market right now. And the market is expanding rapidly. There are various factors that's forcing the government to finally look at the Cannabis Control Act. Last year, they actually formed a, a so-called Blue Ribbon Committee to discuss these changes. It's possible that the three things can can come out of it. One, the legalization of medical cannabis. In this case, medical cannabis refers only to the pharmaceutical remedy. At the same time, they want to tighten the control over THC by making the, the use of THC also punishable. Because currently, the use of cannabis is not punishable. The cultivation and, and distribution and possession are punishable. Okay, so 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 no. I think what you're trying to say is no. This is never you know either it's going to take like hundreds of years or it's just never going to happen. I mean, I I, I think that's interesting. Like like are are you hopeful? Are you individually hopeful about this changing in your lifetime in Japan? Speaking strictly from my personal view, uh, legalization of adult use cannabis is not going to happen. When I'm alive. Well, I do want to, uh, I, I don't want to, um, you know, I, I respect your experience. And I just on a hopeful note, I will say I've been and Abdullah have been in this long enough in the United States and not that long. We're not that old that people would say the same thing in the United States. I'm even 64. <laughs> I just every day. <laughs> now, but yeah, Bean is right in that, you know, we said the same thing. We said the same thing back in the day. We said this is never going to happen in our lifetime. When I was a high school kid, a college kid, I was getting chased around by the police all the time, right? I was like, this is never going to happen, right? This thing that I love, I'm always going to be a criminal for loving it. And now the world is completely transformed for us. And we live in this mm. cannabis loving, you know, society. And so you know, it, it is very possible. Bean, thank you so much for uh, injecting that hope because you're right. We forget. We forget how sure we were that this was not going to happen in our lifetime. So, you know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, ha having said <laughs> having said what I said, I do agree with you. Could happen. I'm not saying it will never happen. When it becomes federally legal in America, you're going to try to sell us your products and 
it's very difficult to say no. Yeah. Hell, I'll send you an ounce for free at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we are, of course, kidding. <laughs> but uh, also, you know. Do you smoke cannabis when you're in Seattle? I don't smoke, but I take edibles. I wish I could smoke. I just can't. My it, it, it irritates my throat too much. I wish I could smoke, too. Oh, I can. <laughs> my wish came true. <laughs> but it totally helps me sleep. So I, I use it. So you are sleep full in Seattle then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's terrible. I am. <laughs> great. It, it got a laugh out of me. Man. We touched earlier on sumo culture in 2008. There was actually what, from an outside perspective, seems like must have been a huge national scandal when several sumo wrestlers were caught with cannabis. Well, one was caught with cannabis and others were caught in a subsequent drug test campaign by the organizing body of sumo wrestling. This was the first time in 2000 years that somebody was completely kicked out of sumo wrestling never allowed to compete again, but also points this finger back at, like, if you really understand the history, this is something that should be celebrated and still is in a way. You know, one of the great things about weed is as much as you try to suppress it, it's still the belt being worn by the champion. Like, this plant is very hard to suppress. Because sumo wrestling is kind of you know close to the to our religion, it's it's very possible that they were more familiar with the plant. But I also think that you know the scandal in sumo wrestling is only a, a tip of the iceberg. You know, it's possible that other sports, other athletes, are also familiar with the with cannabis because it relaxes them, you know, it helps them recover, you know. And we also had an episode of our podcast uh, where we interviewed the snowboarder Ross Rebliati, who was competing in Japan. He won the first gold medal for snowboarding, then had it taken away for failing a drug test. And what a lot of people, and I, I don't think either Abdullah or I knew before the interview was he was also threatened with years in prison. He was interrogated for hours in the police station. That really shined a light, I think, on how harsh the laws are in Japan. And of course, going back to the 80s, Paul McCartney being arrested for smuggling a pound of weed into Japan and held in prison for almost 10 days at the time one of the literal most famous and beloved people in the world. Paul McCartney appeared delighted to be back in Japan at last. He arrived with his wife Linda and their children. Fourteen years ago, he came here with the Beatles, but was refused entry on a later occasion because of his apparent liking for marijuana. The customs officials say that McCartney behaved oddly, and they searched his luggage. Inside, amongst his clothes, they allege they found nearly half a pound of marijuana. After several hours of questioning, the singer was taken away in handcuffs. Japan is particularly strict on drug taking, coming down hard on Japanese caught with pot in their possession. At Narita Airport, customs officials showed the confiscated marijuana to newsmen. They allege the singer admitted bringing pot into Japan, but only to smoke privately. 
you know, from our outside perspective, I think it's incidents like this that often reveal to us how seriously these laws are in, not just on the books, but enforced in Japan. Spending time between America and here, I can say that the stigma here is much stronger. And people's you know, psychological perception of cannabis here is much, much more negative. And we have much less people who have actually experienced. Like in the States, if you're talking to, um, you know, totally middle-aged people, they've all done it when they're in college and they might have stopped, but they have experienced it. And so if you're arrested for cannabis-related crime, your career is basically over, you know, particularly if you're in the public light, you know, showbiz or celebrated artists, uh, athletes or artists, you will be not just by law, but you will be judged and punished by society. So you apologize, plead guilty and apologize. And that's the, that's the routine. And actually, one of our listeners to this podcast and one of our supporters on Patreon, I will say, James. Thanks, James. uh, Thank you, James, both for your support and for putting this interview together and really encouraging us to highlight uh, a case that you're involved in advocating for right now in Japan that I really think shines a light on how dire the situation remains and also each of these cases is an opportunity to change people's minds by showing them not just the history of the plant in Japan but the current injustice around this prohibition. This is a case currently going on a pottery artist named Ryujiro Oyabu. We were saying earlier that when one is arrested for cannabis, it's it's almost automatic that they plead guilty and they apologize and they pray to be you know allowed to be back in the society. He's not doing that. He is delving into our, our core problems. Cannabis Control Act was enacted 19, in 1948 before THC was even identified. It had no um, scientific base whatsoever. Indictment states that he was arrested for possessing 3.149 grams of plant material containing marijuana. Defense team is asking, what do you mean by marijuana? What do you mean by plant containing marijuana? So how much marijuana did he possess? What is he judged for? What it's trying to focus people's attention to is that the law really isn't a base for accusing anybody of a crime. It doesn't clearly say what marijuana is. No one really knows what he's accused of, but no one ever questioned it. I love that the defense is basically like, what what is a plant, man? (laughs) If you can sort of pull the rug out from under the verbiage of the law itself, that's a really novel and brilliant way to use kind of stoner logic to combat this draconian law. I love that. In 1985, there was a trial and the Supreme Court ruled that it is in public knowledge that marijuana is harmful. And that became the judicial precedent that all the following trials referred to. 
you know, no one questioned that either. How is it harmful? But this current trial is questioning that as well. So currently, the, the, the defendant team is posing these questions, very, very fundamental questions to our law. And this really gets to the, the underlying problem, which is that all of these laws are based on lies. All of these laws are based on an inaccurate understanding of this plant and its effects, its potential benefits, its potential harms. And really what the government is saying is it's bad because we said it was bad. Yes, exactly. Again, for a hopeful note, I think... The reason we saw prohibition look so impenetrable in the United States for so long was because of this propaganda. But as soon as that big lie is undermined, it can all collapse very quickly because it's not based in reality. He's prepared to take this fight all the way to the Supreme Court. You know, since his arrest, he has already lost opportunities for exhibitions and whatnot. But he's not an employee of any company. You know, he's uh, is aware of the risks, but he's ready to take it. So he's, in essence, involved in a, in a form almost of civil disobedience, which is something that when we've looked at the history of really how these laws changed in the United States, we look at people like Dennis Perone. Brownie Mary, we have episodes about both of them who not only advocated against these laws and not only broke these laws, but used their own arrest as an opportunity to challenge and subvert and in many ways not just change public opinion, but actually change the law. So this is in a long tradition of civil disobedience. What's the next step in this case from from the outside? What can we what can we look to see is going to happen? So the second hearing is going to happen on the 25th of this month, March 25th. And we in the first hearing, the defendant team has submitted a number of evidence to support his argument, which the prosecutors are disagreeing with. The the evidence we want to be included in in the trial are going to be dismissed. And we have started a campaign, a petition demanding a fairer trial. There is a a page on change.org that anybody can sign. So, you know, it would be great if there are many names of foreign names, you know, we can show that the world is watching. They can't hide. Yeah, absolutely. We will include that link in our show notes. So if you're listening to this and you're compelled by this story and want to seek cannabis justice worldwide, please read the petition, sign the petition, lend your support because this is what grassroots activism is all about. No matter where you are in the world, In the United States, so many state-level legalization campaigns began with a bunch of people giving a shit, and you could be that person in a place that really, really needs it. So please check it out and sign your name. Well, thank you so much, Naoko Miki, for being on the show with us and highlighting a part of the world that we don't often discuss on this show. Thank you so much for having me. All righty. And thank you at home for hanging out with us for this episode of Great Moments in Weed History.
We'll see you next time. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.